Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. The strike forced them to use another route, and they discovered that the other route, although it took them seven minutes longer, there was an M&S Simply Food at the station if you went by train, and that meant you could go and stock up on microwave lasagna on your way home, and they continued doing that after. And I guess that ties in then, Rory, with your last one, which is around... If there was already a logical answer, somebody would have found it. Your recommendation is harder to justify and may require experimentation, but where you gain is that you broaden the solution set and that broadening gives you access to solutions which may be surprisingly cheap to implement. Hi, everybody. This is Colin Shaw. This is part two of a really great interview that we did with Rory Sutherland. If you haven't listened to part one, you really do need to go back and listen to it because there's some really good stuff in it where Rory's talking about it doesn't pay to be logical if everybody else is logical and that logic kills magic and solving problems using rational thinking is like playing golf with just one club many many things okay so really do please go back and listen to part one in part two we're going to be coping with a number of different topics but for those of you who hasn't listened to part one yet let me just introduce Rory Rory is the vice chairman of Ogilvy and he says that his job title is attractively vague because it allows him to think about and play about with behavioral science and moreover than just playing about with it, actually put it into practice, which is the key things. Rory's written a couple of books on the subject of which we'll be talking about one today called Alchemy. And the second thing that I wanted to mention about Rory is that he's done a number of TED Talks. So just go and Google Rory Sutherland. You'll find a load of really good information about Rory. He writes for The Spectator magazine. And this is, as I say, a continuation of the first podcast we did with him because we just carried on talking. It was such a good topic. And just as a reminder, you can get a copy of the podcast summary, a written document. All you simply need to do is just go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. Each time we do a podcast, we put in there the key takeaways and the recommended actions. And hopefully that's useful for you to use as a, as a backup, as a reminder, as a document to share with your team about some of the really good things that we talk about on these podcasts. So again, just go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. So let's continue the conversation with Rory. Last one, dare to be trivial. And again, we've done a couple of podcasts on this, which is how small things can have a massive effect. Can we give us your view? That ties in perfectly to the magic thing, which is that in a complex system, there are butterfly effects. In any system which is non-linear and where there are feedback loops, 
Someone did a calculation which showed that if masks simply reduced the transmission rate by 0.01 or whatever it is, it reduced on naught, as it's called, by a tiny degree, okay, from, let's say, 1.60 to 1.509 or whatever, then the number of people infected over a course of 20 days would run into the thousands. The number of people who would escape infection, even through a tiny reduction in the transmissibility of the virus, that's a butterfly effect because it's an exponential. You also get butterfly effects in psychology a lot, which is a tiny change in wording can lead to an inordinate change in behavior. This comes down to the fact that people don't want to believe in magic. They like a world where in order to obtain a large effect, you have to essentially create a large and expensive intervention. And economics, which is based on a very simple kind of model of physics, it's not really based on complexity at all, tends to assume that the only means to obtain a large effect is to do things very, very differently. In reality, that simply isn't true, that there are opportunities to find butterflies all over the place where if you intervene in a complex system at exactly the right point or at the right time, perhaps, or in the right way, because of the nature of complex systems, you can literally achieve ROIs of thousands to one. And I guess that ties in then, Rory, with your last one, which is around if there was already a logical answer, somebody would have found it. Yeah. So there isn't a shortage of people using well-established, what you might call consensus-approved models to address problems. And they're looking at the thing in exactly the same way. And the very fact that there are far cleverer people than me using rational tools means that the likelihood that I'll be able to out-clever them using their tools is pretty slim. On the other hand, to go back to that math thing, if you deploy a different way of thinking, the solution space suddenly broadens excitingly. A classic example would be that gag I made in the TED Talk, which is you don't need to make the trains faster, you need to make train journeys more productive or more enjoyable. Now, what is Eurostar trying to do? It's trying to get people to go to Paris who wouldn't otherwise go to Paris. Now, actually, the novelty of the train does that in itself because lots of people went to Paris because they wanted to go on the Eurostar. The other thing you've got to do is you don't have to be faster than an aeroplane, because that's more or less impossible. What you've got to do is you've got to make the journey end-to-end more agreeable. Very interesting. To take a classic example, Cunard, when completely depositioned by the airline industry, stopped competing for the Blue Ribbon. You know, only sort of lunatics like Richard Branson compete for the Blue Ribbon. That's the fastest crossing of the Atlantic from west to east, okay? Suddenly, Boeing made the Blue Ribbon total irrelevance because who cares whether it's four days or four and a half days or five if you can fly across there in an afternoon? What Cunard did is they basically unintentionally invented the world's cruise ship industry. Sure. Because they realized the only way you can do this is to make the journey as good as the holiday or part of the holiday. And nobody who's crossed the Atlantic, I think, on a ship has ever asked the question, where did you go on holiday? And answered it, we went to America. They will say, (laughs) we went to America on the Queen Mary, or whatever it might be, okay? Uh Yeah, yeah. Nobody who's been on the Venice Samplon Orient Express said, yeah, we had a really nice time in Venice, right? (laughs) Okay, they talk about the bloody train. That's one of all, by the way, which I adore. Has anybody used Heathrow pod parking? 
No, I've been past it as the pods have been going past. So serious 55-year-old business people of my acquaintance, okay, my colleague Paul Smith, not the Paul Smith, but the creative director of Ogilvy, he always used the pod parking. And every now and then, the pod parking, which, by the way, is priced not much less than using the short-stay car park, even though it's some distance away, the car parks that use buses to connect with the terminal are discounted to a huge degree. The pod parking is a tiny discount relative to, in many cases, relative to parking in the short-stay car park. Yeah. And frequently, they'd actually fill up and they'd say, because the pod parking is full, we've upgraded you to the short-stay car parking for free. Generally, you should be delighted by this upgrade. And as Paul admitted, he said, you could see people being gutted. And what they couldn't admit <laughs> as elderly middle-aged men was, oh, shit, I was looking forward to riding on the pod. <laughs> okay? But that, I mean, that's a really interesting thing. I mean, there's a wonderful thing, which is if you replace buses with trams, even if the frequency and speed hardly changes, far more people use them, because for some perverse reason, people enjoy riding on rails more than they enjoy riding on wheels. Yeah, I have to say that's one that always gets me, is I can't understand why trams are so popular. And you think it's it's still the same as a bus. I mean, logically, it's a bus that can't steer, right? Yeah. You know, know, okay, it's a bit stretchy and long. But logically, however, I mean, what the reason may be, I don't fully know. By the way, there is an economic reason why you have trams, which is that because of the sunk cost, upfront cost of investing in a tram line, if a tram line is built to an outlying district of town, you can safely invest in, let's say, building a call centre there in the knowledge that tram service is guaranteed to continue because of the upfront cost of building the tracks. It'd be highly dangerous to invest in something on the basis that it was well served by buses, because all you need to do is have your bus service cancelled. I had friends who um, bought houses in France on the naive assumption that Ryanair would not change their flight patterns. You end up with a load of people who suddenly their journey down to their French holiday home has gone from being two hours from Stansted to four and a half with a flight at four o'clock in the morning. Training your frontline team on how to create memories in your customers by evoking their emotions. Beyond Philosophy's unique and proven training methodology, Memory Maker Training. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. Last question then, Rory. I wanted to talk to you about the new normal, as people are starting to call it. So as we come out of the pandemic, and undoubtedly it's had a massive effect on on people's psyche, on people's behaviours, work behaviours, as you've just been talking about, but how people buy things. And it seems to me that this is going to have a dramatic effect upon how customers are moving forward. So What advice would you give about understanding the new world and how customers behave in the new world? And do you see any opportunities there for organisations? I'm very, very reluctant to make predictions, except for one thing. We will end up doing a bit more of what we did during the crisis and a bit less of what we didn't do. Weirdly, to understand this concept, you've got to read Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, that when you knock a complex system without destroying it, you generally improve it. 
And one of my favorite experiments from transport and, and uh, travel is there were strikes on three or four London tube lines. They only affected four London tube lines. And a group of people from a few universities got from Transport for London the anonymized but individualized Oyster card data of travel patterns before, during, and after the strike. Because you're the, I can't remember which line it was, but let's say the Victoria line was on strike, a large number of people who lived in Finsbury Park or whatever, if they, I think the Victoria line goes there, is that right? Were forced to find another way into work. Now, interestingly, after the strike ended, a significant minority of those people continued using their new route. Right. We get trapped in two things as humans. We get trapped in habits. And we also get trapped in what you might call social norms. And when a lot of people are forced to do something differently all at the same time, a lot of behaviours enjoy an opportunity for reinvention or recalibration. And what it might have been is that someone moved to Finsbury Park. They started using Finsbury Park Station. And then the strike forced them to use another route. And they discovered that the other route, although it took them seven minutes longer, there was an M&S Simply Food at the station if you went by train. And that meant you could go and stock up on microwave lasagna on your way home. And they continued doing that after. What we have all done here, I mean, there are a whole load of macroeconomic factors and microeconomic factors, but we've discovered that if everybody's tolerably good at it, Zoom's pretty good. Yeah, I agree. Now, what used to kill video conferencing was that the quality of a video conference was actually determined by the most technologically shit person on the conference call. <laughs> but what you mean is if there was only one person out of nine who was fumbling around with their mute or who decided to call in from a missile testing range or a sawbells or whatever it might have been, or who had a terrible microphone, okay, that ruined the call kind of for everybody else. Once everybody gets quite good at this, the gains become spectacular. And the thought experiment I did yesterday, yesterday I gave a talk to 40 people in Romania. Half an hour after that talk had finished, I was talking to three people in Atlanta. Later on, I met up with my colleague who's gone back to Australia. Now, WPP could buy me a Learjet and it wouldn't make that much difference to my ability to do business. Sure. Ultimately, the second thing this is, and I think it's important, is it's revenge of the introverts. There's a very large amount of business behavior, which is heavily calibrated towards introverts. And there's an asymmetry there, okay? Extroverts bully introverts. It never happens the other way around. If you go, you know, if you watch Touching the Void or Everest Expeditions, they don't get up to base camp and a lot of people saying, why are you bothering climbing this? It's dangerous. Why don't you sit in your tent and read Proust, right? You don't get that happening. But fucking active people, the people who like flying, you could if you're an extrovert because you like drinks parties. I think drinks parties are total shit, right? There's a choice of only two alcoholic drinks, which is bad red wine and bad white wine. Everybody's standing up. You can't hear a thing because of the background noise. And yet 70% of the people in the ad industry live to go to events like that. To me, it's completely baffling. Sure. Okay, I mean, genuinely, it's a total mystery why people find them in any way edifying or useful. I can't hear. The drink's terrible. The canapes are inadequate. It's a stupid kind of meal because it's not enough to stop you having a proper meal. And the whole thing is like Chinese water torture. It's a bit like Ryan and I were talking, I did a podcast the other day about habits, how people get habits, and you obviously know all this stuff anyway. It's like a tradition. And I think you're right. What's going to happen is we've had a big shock. 
and therefore there will be things that change out of this. I can just imagine grocery deliveries carrying on people using grocery deliveries far more than they were before and stuff like that. The other thing is, which I think is interesting, is if you've got a local shop which is starting to deliver, which we have, I use Ocado as well. And Ocado have been very good to people who've been regular past customers, by the way, in my experience. I was using it from day one, and I haven't had difficulty getting a weekly slot so far. Also, natural feelings of reciprocation, I think, and I hope, will cause people to go on using those local shopkeepers as a recognition for what they did. In the same way that nobody on this call will be old enough to remember this, but M&S continued to receive credit and respect long into the 1970s for the work they'd done during the war in producing uniforms and essential war supplies. Yeah, my only concern is, I agree, I just wonder how long it will last. I think people will discover a slight, there'll be a rebalancing towards relational capitalism away from transactional capitalism. Part of that will come because this is why, okay, capitalism has over-optimized on efficiency and under-optimized on resilience. And that's because the gains from efficiency are easier to quantify and faster to lay claim to than gains from resilience and redundancy. And one of the departments which I think needs to be shat on fairly extensively as procurement. Now, my wife worked in procurement for British Aerospace, okay? That's proper procurement, which is making sure, using a wide range of long-term variables, that you've got the supplier supplying the things you want at the price you want, but also with the reliability of supply that you might need. So I don't think people were buying military components from China because you saved 7.5p, on the grounds that defence procurement people would have realised, well, what happens if we fall out with the Chinese, okay? Sure. (laughs) No one in a large part of what I call that, so I would like procurement to be renamed and divided into two. The shit part, which should be disposed of immediately, and the good part, which should be retained. And just to give an example, okay, relational capitalism is often practiced by consumers instinctively. I always use the same taxi firm in Seven Oaks, uh, Beeline, uh, just to give them you know, a bit of product placement. Okay. Now, uh, by the way, it, it doesn't matter that it's Beeline, but I always use the same firm because I recognize that the, their value to me does not simply lie in one journey at one price. Yeah. Yep. If I use them regularly, it's going to snow. My wife's car won't start. They're going to pull their finger out a bit more for me than they would for a random punter. And that's the difference between relational capitalism and one-shot capitalism. It's like the difference between repeated game, game theory, and one-off game theory. It's the theory behind frequent flyers as well, isn't it? Because I flew back from the States a couple of weeks ago, and Delta did look after me because I travelled to the States a lot. I mean, I would put it, I would put it very simply, which is that a large part of the satisfaction we derive from having a BA Gold card doesn't lie in the in the simple benefits we gain day to day. It's in the assumption which I think is probably fair. You know, if there are three flights left on a plane and O'Hare is three hours from being snowbound, they're going to give one of those seats to me. No, absolutely. In fact, I said that to my wife. It's in the times of crisis, in times when you need them, that they're there for you. One of the most important things they did, which was partly influenced by behavioural science from Ogilvy, was telling people what their lifetime tier points were. Because when tier points went back to zero every year, 
you had the slight feeling in October or whenever it was that you recycled that you'd gone from being master of the universe to random student backpacker <laughs> in the space of uh, in, in the space of an hour. And so the lifetime tier points was a particular way of saying we do actually notice, we do keep track. Equally, just because of coronavirus or pregnancy, one you know, one of the issues with uh, frequent flying is you can now put your account on hold because there are people who are generally frequent flyers who will have long periods when they're unable to fly. It's not necessarily appropriate to penalise those people for that. Sure. I'm conscious of time, Rory, and I could carry on talking to you for hours. What practical advice would you give somebody in an organization? So all of the stuff that's in your alchemy book, I highly recommend people to get it, read it, watch the TED videos, say hello to you in Copenhagen Airport. What do you think people could practically do? What my next book will be about is the trade-off between the need for certainty and ambiguity and avoidance. And when you're desperate for certainty and the pretense of a single right optimal answer, the invisible price you're paying for that certainty is that you're constrained to a very small number of solutions. And those solutions that are produced tend to be expensive and large scale interventions. If you're prepared to be a bit ambiguous and believe in magic, you broaden your solution set considerably. You do pay a price in terms of your recommendation is harder to justify and may require experimentation. But where you gain is that you broaden the solution set and that broadening gives you access to solutions which may be surprisingly cheap to implement. Right. That's basically, there's a certainty ingenuity trade-off. I think most organizations and particularly management consultants have been immune to that. And one of the great things with management consultants is if there's a slight dig in that when everybody else is using logic, management consultants apply the same methodologies to competing firms within the same space. Now, to a brand-minded person who believes in distinctiveness and perhaps a degree of differentiation, that's a heinous thing to be doing. I agree. That's why we focus on providing distinction by understanding customer behavior. And the key thing for us is what's driving value for your individual company. A lot of those fashions like offshoring, actually, they were driven by visible short term savings at the price of invisible and longer term costs. A lot of brand advertising activity is the same thing. I think the shift to digital is basically driven not by what makes you more profitable, what makes you grow, what makes you more effective. It's driven by the need to quantify in the short term rather than the need to make trade-offs between what's measurable, quantifiable, and immediate versus what's fuzzy, uh, hard to quantify, and long-range. Sure. Good point. So, Rory, thank you very much for coming on the show today. And as I've said before, please go out and get Rory's book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Watch out for his TED Talks. And Rory, if people want to get hold of you, how is it best they do that? The best first point, and I'm very happy to follow you back if you want to engage in longer chat, Twitter at, at Rory Sutherland, all one word. So uh, no full stops, no dashes, just at Rory Sutherland. Perfect. Okay, Roy, great having you. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Stay safe, stay well, and stay indoors.
So that was really fascinating talking to Rory. That was a lot of fun. He's an amazing guy. Yeah, really, really great. And it's really good just to see somebody doing stuff with this and, and the effect that it's starting to have, which is the really exciting thing for me. What I'd like to do is what are the key takeaways that we have here? You know, what are the major things that sort of stick out from you from that conversation? Do you want to go first, Ryan? Sure. So one overriding note, I think that Rory's inspiring in terms of the creative way that he approaches problems. And not all of us are going to be able to match that level of creativity. He's got kind of a unique mind. One thing when I was in graduate school and and studying economics, I was struck at one point by how you and I pick on economists a lot as being kind of thinking too narrowly. Let me praise economists for a second. There's an approach to that economists take to understanding the world, which is almost metaphorical, where they'll look at a problem and then substitute in just a, a completely different framework for looking at it. So there are, there are economists who study relationships, for example, and treat them as almost kind of a, a market or a transaction. So they'll look at like the dating market and apply some rules of economics to determine how various people choose romantic partners. And by looking at it in that really diagonal way, they're actually able to come up with some very interesting insights about human behavior by treating relationships as if it were a market. I think Rory does something similar, only from kind of a a behavioral science or, or psychology perspective, where he will apply completely the wrong tools or completely a bizarre framework to trying to solve a problem. And the result for him often is just very, very interesting. He's able to come up with really radically different insights. So for those of us who are interested in behavioral science, behavioral science itself offers some really new ways of thinking about things. Let's try not to fall into the trap that we accuse economists of, which is now that we've got these tools, let's apply them in precisely the way that They've always been applied in the past and that research says that we should look at it. Let's see if we can have fun with it in the way that clearly Rory does. No, absolutely. And I think it's that sort of the lateral thinking that I admire. When I look at some of the rules that he talked about, it doesn't pay to be logical if everybody else is being logical was one of his rules. I just wish I could get that over to a number of people across business, that they still approach things in um, far too much of a logical way. And the other one for me, and I'm going to get on a bit of a run here, the other one for me is the problem with being logical is it kills off magic. Uh, Again, another one of Rory's rules. And I think that's so true that we sometimes just constrain ourselves as businesses into the same type of thinking. And again, the third rule, which I loved again, which was if there's already a logical answer, somebody else would have found it. And, you know, just go, yeah. (laughs) When I'm doing speeches, I sometimes ask the audience, how many people think that business is going to get easier over the next 10 years? Yeah. Guess how many people put their hand up? (laughs) Not many. If you think of the sophistication of business today, if you think of the computers and the, the ability to analyze things and everything else, if there was a logical answer to things, somebody would have found it out. 
and they haven't in most industries. So by for me, that points to the fact that you have to go to the illogical, irrational arguments and do what Rory was talking about, which is effectively looking at things far more laterally and experimenting with things. I mean, that's an interesting perspective on it, isn't it? Because you and I often argue that rational solutions are blinkered, they're limited, they're kind of too focused, and they, they miss a lot of what's going on. You know, and, and that argument that we make is almost theoretical, right? It's the idea that, that this is the wrong way to do it, because you're missing out on things. He makes a, a strategic argument around it. The reason that you shouldn't limit yourself to rational thinking about problems is because it's just it's bad policy, you're going to be outcompeted, you know, somebody else is going to have gotten there first. So it's a different argument for the same point that we've been trying to make for a long time. I agree. And I think he's right. The good thing is, is that in the advertising industry, a lot more latitude is given to, you know, a more lateral thoughts, basically. If you're in a business to business environment, and you're selling some widget or something like that, then again, the issue for me becomes the organization the culture of the organization, if it's a logical, rational organization, that eventually seeps through into the experience that you're giving your customer because the organization looks at things laterally, etc. And again, one of the other rules that I, I loved was dare to be trivial. And again, we've had two or three different podcasts where we've talked about the small things that can have a big effect. And again, I think he was totally right that People think that to make a big change and get a big effect, you've got to do something big. And actually, it's really surprising that you don't. And the example I was I was thinking about was the example that regular listeners would would know that I've used before. But for those of you that haven't heard this before, let me tell you the story. We were doing a piece of work with an insurance company some a few years ago, where when a customer was placing an order for a product or service, they would phone the organization and place the order and then the agent would turn around and say, your policy document should be with you within five working days. And what was happening was 76% of the people that had that interaction were then phoning back within three or four days and basically saying, could you tell me where my policy documents are? Now, this was one of the largest insurance companies in the UK. This was actually what their work in the UK that we were doing. And so that was literally millions of phone calls they were getting back. And they asked us to look at it and we looked at it. And what we noted was that the agent was saying, your policy documents should be with you within five working days. And we basically got them to change one word, which was to change should to will. So your policy documents will be with you in five working days. And literally within three weeks, the number of return calls moved from 76% down to 6%. Okay, an incredible drop. Now, the reason I tell you that, repeat that story now, and my apologies for those people that have heard it before, but that's changing one word. Yeah. And think of the cost involved in dealing with return phone calls of 76% of organizations, think of the costs and think by just changing that one word, think of the savings that were made. Now you apply that type of thinking 
And that's where I think when we're working with our clients and we're looking at all of this stuff, it's picking out those small things that have a massive effect. It doesn't need to be a massive program with a massive system that's going to cause massive change, etc. Quick wins that have massive effect can absolutely be found. And that's what typically what we discover when we're doing some of this stuff. Anyway, recommended actions for me would be read the book. <laughs> An easy one. Read Rory's book. Okay. And second action, listen to his TED Talks. Third action, start thinking about things more laterally. And the other thing that I liked about what he was talking about and what he talks about in his book is test things. Yeah. This does not have to be a massive implementation across the whole organization. Test it. If it doesn't work, fine, move on to the next test. But by testing things, you can get some empirical evidence of why this is happening. For me, the other part of this is you got to get more people in your organization to embrace this stuff. And if that means telling them about the podcast, then great. If that means getting them to start listening to TED Talks, then great. But think about how you can start to influence people in your organization to start to think more laterally and start to embrace this stuff. Anything else from you, Ryan, on what you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, those are the the two kind of promises of behavioral science that I think matter most are, are the idea that these disproportionate outcomes relative to the changes that you make or the inputs that you make, and then also testing, right? Uh, the idea that because little changes matter a lot, that means that the implementations kind of have to be right. And so even if in theory something works, you still need to test it in practice. That That's, that's another very, very important learning from behavioral economics and behavioral science that maybe doesn't get as much attention. So I was thrilled that, that Rory included that in his book, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So yeah, both of those things. You know, think, think really creatively, but then also test rigorously. And the last thing I would say is we are going to do our usual podcast summary of this. So we would be writing down the key takeaways. We will put links in there to Rory's book, etc. We will also have in there the recommended actions. And that's something that you can keep and share with your colleagues and can be part of your campaign to get people to start thinking differently. And that's available at Beyond Philosophy dot com backslash podcast summary that is beyond philosophy.com backslash podcast summary and uh, we look forward to talking to you next week thanks very much for listening cheers this has been the intuitive customer with colin shaw and professor ryan hamilton but it doesn't end here just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.